from deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of the Motion Picture Academy, you know I speak on their behalf uh, quite seldom, I'm pleased today to announce that the position of accounting firm, official accounting firm overseeing the awarding of the Oscars at the annual Academy Awards ceremony in Hollywood will be going to Ernst & Young, a distinguished international accounting firm with a history that goes... What? I... Oh, this, this side of the... The Academy has awarded that position once again to PricewaterhouseCooper, I'm proud to say. Even after the Academy had opened a review into the role of PricewaterhouseCooper in charge of the Oscars since 1934 after the wrong envelopes were given to La La Land instead of the actual winner, Moonlight. The Academy will retain the services of PricewaterhouseCooper, but with different employees and a ban on the use of electronic devices backstage. That should work, and that should be uh, easy to enforce because it's Oscar night. President Cheryl Boone Isaac said the Academy has been unsparing in our assessment that the mistake made by representatives of the firm was unacceptable. But PricewaterhouseCooper has taken full responsibility for the mistake. The board has decided to continue working with them. The uh, chairman of PricewaterhouseCooper would take a greater oversight role at future, future ceremonies, meaning now he's got a free ticket. And we are uh, told there's an increasing battle in the cyber space, in the cyber war space. So why play defense? When uh, Julian Assange disclosed earlier this month that his group WikiLeaks had obtained CIA tools for hacking into technology products made by U.S. companies, engineers at Cisco Systems, one of those companies, swung into action. The uh, documents described how the CIA had learned more than a year ago how to exploit flaws in Cisco's widely used Internet switches to enable eavesdropping. Senior Cisco managers immediately reassigned staff from other projects to find out how the CIA hacking tracks Hacking tricks worked, this according to Reuters, so they could help customers patch their system and prevent hackers or spies from using the same methods. That's according to three employees talking to Reuters anonymously, lest they be killed. The uh, Cisco engineers worked around the clock. Then a major U.S. company had to rely on WikiLeaks to learn about security problems well known to U.S. intelligence agencies and underscores concerns expressed by dozens of current and former U.S. intel and security officials about our government, that's the U.S. government's approach to cybersecurity. That policy overwhelmingly emphasizes offense over defense, these people told Reuters, even as an increasing number of U.S. organizations have been hit by hacks attributed, sometimes accurately, to foreign governments. A former senior director of the White House Situation Room under the Obama administration says... Now that others are catching up to the United States in cyber capabilities, quote, maybe it's time to take a pause and fully consider the ramifications of what we're doing, unquote. We don't have time. CIA spokeswoman Heather Fritz Horniak. Now, there's a job they didn't tell you about in, in high school career day. CIA spokeswoman 
or spokesperson. Declined to comment on the Cisco uh, case, said it was the agency's job to be innovative, cutting edge, and the first line of defense in protecting the country. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence was oversees the CIA NSA. Referred questions to the White House, and they, you'll be surprised to learn, didn't comment. Across the federal government, Reuters reports, 90% of all spending on cyber programs is dedicated to offensive efforts. That's what senior intelligence officials told Reuters. But they were being offensive. Hello, welcome to the show. When I was young, I lived in a world of dreams Of moods and myths and illusionary schemes Though now I'm much more grown up I fear that I must own up To the fact that I'm in doubt of What the modern cynics shout of They say it's spring This feeling light as a feather They say this thing This magic we share together Came with the weather too They say it's May That's made me daft as a daisy It's May, they say It's made the whole world this crazy Heavenly hazy hue I'm a lark on a wing I'm a spark of a firefly's fling Yet to me, this must be Something more than a seasonal thing Could it be spring? Those bells that I can hear ringing It may be spring Robin, stop singing You're what I'm clinging to Though they say it's spring It's you If poets sing Spring. Then poets' plights are pathetic, but I'm poetic too. They say it's spring. For lovers, there's where the lure September the cure is 
This they are sure is true Though I know That it's so That my fancy may turn in the spring With the right One inside One can find a perpetual thing Did I need spring To bring the ring that you bought me Though it was spring Wondrous day that you caught me Darling, I thought we knew That it was in spring From Santa Monica, the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. More about the homeless momentarily, but first... News of smart houses. A new attack on smart TVs allows a malicious actor, or writer or director for that matter, to take over devices that use, or that would be picking up, rogue digital video broadcasting terrestrial signals, DVBT for short. Those are signals your smart TV is set up to receive and to use the device for all sorts of nasty actions ranging from widespread denial-of-service attacks to spying on end users. You, ladies and gentlemen, in the industry parlance, are an end user. This news comes from a website called bleepingcomputer.com. Until now, all smart TV exploits relied on attackers having physical access to the TV in order to plug in a USB dongle, pardon me, that executes malicious code. Other attacks relied on having attackers tricking users into installing a malicious app on their TV that's connected to the Internet. The CIA developed a hacking tool called Weeping Angel, which could take over Samsung smart TVs and turn them into spying devices. But that that exploit, as they call it, needed physical access to install, which made it less likely to be used in mass attacks. It could be used one target at a time. So now comes this new method developed by Raphael Scheel, a security researcher working for a Swiss cyber security company, One Consult. It's Swiss, but they're named in English because the attacker can execute his method from a remote location without user interaction. It runs in the background processes of your TV, meaning users won't notice when your smart TV is compromised. Researcher told the website he developed this technique without knowing about Weeping Angel. He says about 90% of the TVs sold in the last years, a little vague, are potential victims of similar attacks. This highlights a major flaw in the infrastructure surrounding smart TVs all over the globe. The rest of the universe, I guess, is safe. He 
He um, developed two exploits he hosted on his own website, which when loaded into the TV's built-in browser would execute malicious code and effectively take over the device. His attack benefits from the way the smart TV ecosystem has developed. That is to say, there are much fewer, many fewer, I should say, smart TV models on the market and a much higher homogeneity between their operating systems than compared with, say, personal computers. So an attacker could target a wide range of TVs without having to create different versions. Furthermore, because updating smart TVs, firmware isn't a streamlined process, security flaws can remain in the wild for years, or in some cases, forever, or at least until the sun dies. You know that's going to happen, right? Bet on it. The best feature of his attack, from the standpoint of attackers, is the fact that the transmission method, DVBT, is a unidirectional signal, meaning data flows from the attacker to the victim only. This makes the attack traceable only if the attacker is caught in real time transmitting the rogue code, or the rogue signal, sorry. According to Shield, an attacker can activate his transmitter for one minute, deliver the exploit, and then shut it off for good. Forensic experts investigating the hack would have no way of tracking back the attack to its source unless the attacker started broadcasting again. The attack takes minutes to notice. The user doesn't notice anything. It's a technique tailor-made for nation-state surveillance operations. Shields says he doesn't understand the security concept behind the uh, protocol for smart TVs. For me, it's really dangerous to use such an untrusted signal to do something really critical. Well, thank goodness we have robust def... Oh. Def, def, def. What can it do, this exploit? It can run those botnets, make your TV part of a, a network of robotic computers that can shut down other websites. Spy on users, end users. You're an end user. Congratulations, end user. Via the TV's microphone and camera, your TV has a microphone. Well, that's smart. Steal data stored on the TV or inject ads onto the TV, like sabotaging competitors on the smart TV market. Because it's so very smart to have a smart house. And now... He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an inspector general. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. You know about uh, asset forfeiture, don't you? The uh, rule, I don't even think it's a law, that allows prosecution agencies to seize cars, homes, other assets, cash, uh, of people they suspect of being involved in the war on drugs. Well... The Drug Enforcement Administration has taken billions of dollars in cash that way from people who are never charged with criminal activity. That's according to a report issued by the Justice Department Inspector General. Since 2007, the DEA has seized more than $4 billion in cash from people suspected of involvement with the drug trade. But 81% of those seizures were conducted administratively, that is to say without the participation of a judge. No civil or criminal charges were brought against the owners of the cash. No judicial review of the seizures ever occurred. It's clean. 
No, no interference from, you know, like judges. That total does not include the dollar value of cars, homes, electronics, and clothing. The practice of civil asset forfeiture doesn't require authorities to obtain a criminal conviction. It allows departments to keep seized cash and property for themselves unless individuals successfully challenge the forfeiture in court. Critics say this creates a perverse profit motive incentivizing police to seize goods not to fight crime, but to, you know, help the old bottom line in the department. The inspector general found the Department of Justice does not collect or evaluate the data necessary to know whether its seizures and forfeitures are effective or the extent to which seizures, ah, no, you know, for, uh, asset seizures, pose potential risks to civil liberties. Yeah, who, who could tell? Who would know? In the absence of this information, the report examined 100 DEA cash seizures that occurred without a court warrant and without the presence of narcotics, the latter of which would provide evidence of criminal behavior, perhaps. Fewer than half of those seizures were related to a new or ongoing criminal investigation or led to an arrest or prosecution, according to the IG. When seizure and administrative forfeitures do not ultimately advance an investigation or prosecution, the IG says, law enforcement creates the appearance and risks the reality that it's more interested in seizing and forfeiting cash than advancing an investigation or prosecution. Since 2007, the asset forfeiture fund of the DOJ has ballooned to $28 billion. In 2014 alone, authorities seized $5 billion in cash and property. That's greater than the value of all documented losses to burglary that year. <laughs> so the DOJ is doing better than burglars. And they work during the day. In most of the seizures examined by the IG, DEA officers initiated encounters with people based on whether they met certain criteria, like traveling to or from a known source city for, narco- uh, for drug trafficking, purchasing a ticket within 24 hours of travel, purchasing a ticket for a long flight with an immediate return, purchasing a one-way ticket, uh-oh, and traveling without checked luggage, unquote. I do that. Do you? It happens. Some of the encounters were based on tips from confidential sources working in the travel industry. Oh, those are people you can trust, a number of whom have received large sums of money in exchange for their cooperation. This sounds so much like the way uh, people in Afghanistan turned in their enemies for bounties, and those people ended up in Guantanamo. In one case, in this Situation officers targeted an individual for questioning on a tip from a travel industry informant that the individual had paid paid for a plane ticket with prepaid debit card and cash. Well, that's so wrong. Most individuals who have stuff seized don't dispute it. There's no right to an attorney in forfeiture proceedings. And they're legally complex. The cases are brought against the property rather than the individual leading to some goofy stuff. Of course, criminal proceedings assume the defendant's innocent, but for, uh, forfeiture proceedings start from the presumption of guilt. That means if your stuff is seized, you have to prove your innocence in court. The Inspector General's report finds that those who do often get at least a portion of their cash returned. Among those who contested the seizure, nearly 40% ended up getting some or all, suggesting the DEA's forfeiture net ensnares many individuals not involved in wrongdoing. But they got cash. 
That's the key. This is your brain on the war on drugs and news of inspectors general, ladies and gentlemen. But now, for something not that different. News of bad banks. Oh, we got a bad one here. Santander Consumer USA. That doesn't mean they're a consumer. It means it's a bank. Has agreed to pay $25.9 million to resolve investigations by attorneys general in Massachusetts and Delaware into its financing and securitization of subprime, no, auto loans. I think on this broadcast about six months ago, I had mentioned that Subprime auto loans were the next bubble to burst. Settlements resolved allegations that Santander facilitated unfair, high-rate auto loans for thousands of car buyers, and then the loans were packaged into securities sold to investors. Sounds good, doesn't it? These are the first settlements in connection with U.S. investigations into subprime auto loan securitization. The Justice Department has also been investigating the matter. But, you know, slow off the, off the mark. Santander is the largest packager of subprime auto loan securities in the United States. It's an arm of the Spanish bank. In a statement, it said it was pleased to resolve the matter. It's hard to please a bank, don't you know? In the last 18 months, our new management team has taken significant steps to strengthen our business practices and controls. It stressed that the, that was their statement. It stressed the settlements, which focused how, on how the auto loans were originated, were not about securitizations. According to the uh, Massachusetts Attorney General, the investigation revealed that Santander financed auto loans without a reasonable basis to believe borrowers could afford them, predicting many would default. That sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? Sounds so. That's so 2007. The Pro Bolter revealed that Santander knew certain dealerships had high default rates due to inaccurate data on loan applications, but kept buying the loans from them anyway. Santander even identified a group of dealers it called the, quote, fraud dealers, unquote, whose loans it nonetheless continued to fund. Oh, that is a bad bank, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. How about some news of the godly? Got it right here. Across the state of Victoria in Australia, on buildings associated with the Catholic Church, blank rectangles are appearing. No, it's, it's not a statement of agnosticism. They signify the fresh removal of plaques installed decades earlier to signify the opening of a school, church, hospital, or hall. Echoed on the plaques is a name, Most Reverend R.A. Mulkerns, Bishop Ronald Austin Mulkerns. He blessed almost every Catholic building opened in the Ballarat Diocese between 1974 and 1996. He also, not in his spare time, supervised one of the worst periods of clerical child sexual abuse in Australia. Bishop Mulkerns, who died at 85 last year, oversaw the diocese when notorious pedophile priests Gerald Risdale, Robert Best, and other clergy regularly abused children. So his name is being removed from church buildings throughout the diocese. And also down under, pardon the expression, institutional apologies to victims of child sexual abuse are sometimes weak, insulting, and do not go far enough to address the long-term damage that's caused. That's the 
testimony before the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse responses that's been ongoing in Australia. This is a testimony from the uh, Child Trauma Academy in the United States, one of several experts giving such evidence about the impacts of abuse. You can't erase institutional coercion and institutional abuse of process by issuing a statement, Bruce Perry said. That doesn't do it. That's not enough. During the course of his work, Dr. Perry says he's worked with survivors who'd been offended by official statements from the organizations in which they were abused. Quote, some of the responses by institutions that have finally taken responsibility have been so weak and they've been so feeble, it almost feels insulting to them. You can't have a little PR thing that says the YMCA is sorry that we sexually abused all you kids in our child care centers. I think he's picking on the YMCA there. If your institution contributed to this process for three generations, he says, you need a three-generation problem-solving process to address it. Dr. Perry said survivors of child abuse were at increased risk of developing a range of problems, including heart disease, depression, and schizophrenia. There are physical and physiological changes that take place in the body and brains of people who have had histories of sexual abuse, he says. During development, it can impact certain systems in the body and the brain that are involved in stress response. And then when they get to be an apparent, oh, sorry, when they get to be an adult, it'll influence the way they parent, unquote. News of the Godly, this gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
It's springtime in Santa Monica, and this is Le Show. And now news of AFPAC. The Taliban, you've heard of them, have captured the strategic district of Sanjin in the southern province of Helmand. Late this month, according to local officials, talking to the New York Times. Yeah. Yeah. It was the culmination of a years-long offensive that took the lives of more combatants than any other fight for territory in Afghanistan. Spokesmen for the central government denied claims by the Taliban the district had fallen to them, but some conceded the insurgents had overrun the district center and government facilities, but not the uh, used tire store. Local Afghan government and military officials said there was no doubt Sanjin had finally fallen to their enemy. Spokesman for the American military played down the development, saying Afghan security forces were still in the district and had merely moved its seat of government. They repositioned the district center. He said this move for a new district center had been planned for some time. More will be moving Washington to uh, Pittsburgh shortly because it's so easy. More British troops and later American Marines died in Sanjin than in any of Afghan's, Afghanistan's roughly 400 other districts. Since 2013, when uh, it was turned over to Afghan military forces, hundreds of them, their soldiers and police officers, have lost their lives defending Sanjin. American special operations soldiers and aerial bombing tried to prevent the collapse of the district, apparently without success, although the, the moving of this center worked. Because of its strategic importance, the international coalition has invested heavily in defending Sanjin. In the years before then, it was the site of substantial losses for both British and American troops. A ghost with a blood-soaked past, a man with so many enemies, even his closest aides, insist they have no idea where he is, but they're trying to orchestrate his return to Kabul, the capital he once attacked. It's Gulbuddin Hekmatyar. He briefly emerged from the shadows six months ago, according to the Washington Post, appearing by video to sign a peace agreement with President Ashraf Ghani. The deal with the notorious fugitive warlord whose rockets rained down in Kabul during the 1990s, was touted as a breakthrough that could induce Taliban insurgents to follow suit. Uh, Last month, the U.N. Security Council voted to lift terrorism-related sanctions against him, partly clearing his way to return home and participate in politics. His aides envisioned a, a grand entry into Kabul worthy of Alexander the Great, with caravans converging on the city from four directions. The agreement has been made. There will be no u turn Big crowds will gather to welcome him, and their numbers will speak, said a spokesman for Hekmatyar, whose advanced team is operating from an elegant, heavily guarded mansion in Kabul. But negotiations over the conditions of his return are at a standfill, standstill. Official enthusiasm is waning. Analysts suggest the immersion of such a polarizing figure in national politics could aggravate the power struggles that are tearing the government apart. Hekmatyar is known as a canny politician, brutal fighter, and stern Islamic fundamentalist. In the 1980s, he headed an anti-Soviet militia sponsored by the CIA and Pakistan. After the Soviets bailed, he became a transitional prime minister and then a destructive, factional brawler in the civil strife that followed. When the Taliban seized power in 1996, he moved underground, shuttling between Pakistan and Iran. After the Taliban were overthrown, he declared war on the new civilian rulers in Kabul, sometimes fighting alongside Taliban insurgents. The U.S. government declared his political party a terrorist group. Two efforts at reconciliation failed. He hasn't been seen in public in two decades. Ghani's invitation 
was viewed in Kabul, according to the Washington Post, as a desperate move rather than a thought-out strategy. The government offered him amnesty for wartime abuses, freedom to organize politically, and generous subsidies for his lifestyle and protection. And in return, he agreed to disarm his forces. Months later, negotiators are far apart on most crucial details. He wants his own security. security. He wants hundreds of prisoners from his former militia released. Government says no to that. He wants tens of thousands of his followers to be given land. The government says no to that. Many Afghans argue banking on Hekmatyar to influence the Taliban was unrealistic to start with, given their increasing success on the battlefield, see Sanjin, and their denunciation of him as a criminal and traitor to Islam when the peace accord was announced. In some regions, his forces have joined with the Taliban. In others, they've been competitors. He remains popular in certain provinces, but it's difficult to imagine him being welcomed back to the capital he once pounded with rockets. Well aware of this, his advisors in Kabul have been working to rebrand him as a thoughtful religious scholar and man of letters. One spokesperson, advisor, describes him as a man of wisdom and knowledge who spends his time reading and writing. But he remains lodged in the public imagination as the ruthless butcher of Kabul, according to the Post. And... Facing international criticism for military corruption and domestic anger over a deadly insurgent attack on a military hospital in Kabul, Afghan defense officials announced this week almost 1,400 army personnel, including several generals, have been fired in connection with corruption charges in just the past year. The officials said Major General Mohammed Moeen Fekir, the former commander of an Afghan army corps in the volatile south, was arrested recently on charges of embezzlement and abuse of authority. More than 300 people have been prosecuted, military officers and civilian administrators alike. Deputy Defense Minister says they've taken significant steps to tackle corruption and to bring changes and reform to the security forces, which have been heavily criticized for graft, including the resale of supplies, including food meant for troops, resale of the food intercepted by their commanders and then resold to the troops. This comes shortly after the U.S. Inspector General denounced corruption in Afghanistan. One more time. Eight generals, 11 commanders of detachments, 296 other officers among those suspected of crimes, including bribery, theft, and murder. No cases were described in detail. Well, that sounds good from here. How does it sound there? From Afghanistan Public Radio, you need the truth now more than ever, and you need us too. From the abandoned American television truck in downtown Kabul, come for the checkpoints, stay for the crime. I'm Mahmoud. <laughs> and I'm Hamid. We're Schlick and Schlock, the exiled at home brothers. Welcome to another edition of Cars I Talk. Today's program comes to you with the aid of the Afghan Automobile Club. We're not there when you need us, but we have great meetings. <laughs> <laughs> so, my younger brother, mm-hmm. it's springtime again, which means it's fighting season again. Oh, yes. All over the Hindu Kush, the rifles are in bloom. 
<laughs> Especially the wild ones. <laughs> <laughs> that is right. But seriously, my younger brother, mm. some people I talk to are wondering if we can ever break free of this apparently ceaseless cycle of warfare and killing. Oh, please. If I couldn't sell most of my land cruisers to the army, my business would have to depend on the average Joe. And? What's wrong with that? My dear sibling, do you know how few people in this country are named Joe? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Hello, you're on Cars I Talk. Uh, hello, this is uh, Gould Budin, uh, long-time uh, bloodthirsty warlord, first-time caller. Oh, General Hakmatyar, mm. welcome. Thank you. It's been too long. And it still hasn't been long enough. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> uh, boys, I love pointless badinage as much as the next warlord, but I'm um, calling from an undisclosed location, and uh, the longer I'm on the phone... The more likely the government can track it and find out where you are? No, but the more likely that the Dick Cheney will want his cabin back. <laughs> <laughs> well, good Buddha. Last we heard was that you were going to make peace with the government, bring the Taliban to the table, uh, to the talks, and Afghanistan was going to be a land of, if not milk and honey, at least a land of uh, non-dairy creamer and splendor. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever your writer is, he needs a raise and a week off. <laughs> uh, but now we hear through the grapevine. Which, I must say, in all fairness, in our country... Is an actual vine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we hear that the deal may not be so happening. Uh, look, Mahmoud, mm. there is a word in our language for warlord. There is no word in our language for peace lord. Hmm. There isn't one in English either. <laughs> <laughs> that is why I was calling into your show. Oh, meaning you have a question for us? Mm -hmm. That is, of course, is why we're getting the big bucks. Oh. I thought it was for the sweetheart contract. <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm wondering if you know whether President Hani... We know him. And Chief Executive Abdullah Abdullah... We know him, we know him. <laughs> <laughs> ...have the political space vis-a-vis -vis our friends to make the kind of deal that uh, a person like myself could agree to. Mm, very sophisticated question for a radio show. Even a public radio show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we get more sophisticated if you give. <laughs> but uh, to tell you the truth... Oh, well, don't go overboard. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say that the Americans have their hands full right now with Iraq and Syria and Yemen and Libya and Somalia. And so I think there's never been a better time for our leadership on all sides to make an arrangement without, shall we say... Our coalition allies getting their knickers in a twist, or frankly, even noticing. Well, that's very reassuring, mm. but my question was really about whether our Pakistani friends would allow such a deal to go forward. Mm. Well, that's different. Those fellows are weird. <laughs> they like to twist their own knickers. <laughs> they do. Thanks for the call. Well, he seemed nice. Oh, nicer than in the old days. Yes, in the old days he wouldn't have bothered to telephone our studio. Mm. 
he would have just firebombed it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Hello, you are on cars, I talk. Hello, this is General Fakir, long-time commander of an army corps in the volatile south. First-time caller. General, welcome. I assume you've been released since your recent arrest. Yes, I'm calling you from the comfort of my palatial estate. Mm, so you're out on bail? Uh, you could say that. Mm. Uh, funds were certainly exchanged. Well... As they say these days, that is fakir news. <laughs> General, I know that we've all heard stories about what's going on inside the Afghan army. Well, I know where you are going, and let me just say that those women are from Tajikistan, so... I wasn't going there. But take us there now, please. Oh, stop. <laughs> where I was going, General, yes. was that you hear from people with relatives in the army mm -hmm. that the soldiers are having to buy their own food. Mm -hmm. One also hears that they have to buy their food from their commanding officers. Well, just as a matter of policy, mm -hmm. boys, we certainly wouldn't want to leave a function as important as the feeding of our troops in the hands of less responsible, lower-ranked personnel. Well, that's a good point. You only want to buy food from officers you can trust. Mm, with the good army-keeping seal of approval. <laughs> uh, but as to the larger question of whether our soldiers should uh, have to buy their food at all, mm -hmm. which is, I think, what you were aiming at, uh, our American friends have all along been advising us to inculcate their values more deeply into our population. Mm. Certainly one of those key values is self-reliance, mm. the ability to compete for one's sustenance in a free market context where your fellow soldiers are maybe even bidding against you. Mm. But that builds that self-reliance that would be so useful to these men when they leave the military someday and return to their cardboard boxes at major intersections. <laughs> <laughs> well, General, when you put it that way, I have to wonder why you didn't charge them for their uniforms, too. They're supposed to have uniforms. <laughs> General, just a few moments left before this Afghan life. Do you have a question for us? Well, as you know, they're probably going to try to make an example of me, despite my years of service. Mm. And most of my savings happen to be tied up at the moment in luxury ghost condos in London. Mm. So for legal representation, mm -hmm. should I go hourly or flat fee or maybe even try for pro bono? Well, I don't know if Bano plays benefits anymore, <laughs> but I'd say flat fee. My brother has actually been sued. I changed the nameplate on a Corona to a Corolla. But uh, he represented himself. Mm -hmm. I didn't allow myself to testify, but I made a hell of a closing statement. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the call. I we had help today from Brainify. Just hearing their funding credits makes you smarter. Legal services for cars I talk from the law firm of Ketchum and Newcomb. I'm Mahmoud. I'm Hamid. Join us next time for another non-rerun edition of Cars I Talk. This is APR, Afghanistan Public Radio. And now news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Eberzal Jr. The Olympics needs a reboot. And it's re-behind, I guess. To regain the confidence of the public in the bidding process, the current model is dead, according to a high-ranking former IOC official. Michael Payne 
who's widely credited with transforming the IOC brand and its finances through sponsorship. Thank you for that, sir. I can't wear my T-shirts anymore. Told Agence France Presse, there's no problem with the end product of the games itself. That's the end product as experienced by the end user. O to B at the end. He's a former director of marketing at the IOC who's advising L.A. in the 2024 bid. Says the public needs to be convinced they want the games in their city. The bidding process as we know it is dead, Payne said. The present system that there's a nice beauty contest and then two of them turning up at the altar is dead. He says the power of social media has left bidding for the games open to unprecedented scrutiny. People want to know more than before about what public money was being spent and why. Yeah, I blame social media too. Everyone has to do a much better job of explaining in the case of the Olympics. It's not that the end product is broken. The audience ratings at the end of Rio were as strong as they've ever been, he says. Really? But the journey getting there in post-games report, if you get it wrong, is a lot more brutal and undermining confidence in the future. He was an advisor to the successful Rio bid and subsequently brokered a massive broadcasting deal with a Brazilian media giant. He says L.A.'s 2024 bid enjoys high public approval because there's still the memory of the 1984 games and what that did for Los Angeles. According to Payne, the people of L.A. wanted the Olympics in 1984, but only if it was privately financed and they got their way. L.A. rewrote the model and created such a success with a $250 million profit it led to Barcelona bidding and Sydney. He calls for another revamp to get a skeptical public in cities all over the world back behind the Olympics. Los Angeles created the modern games and buried the memory of the Montreal bankruptcy, which made nobody want the games. There's a sense of Groundhog Day. He says, you've been there, done that, now reboot the process. Well, not rebooting, repeating. In Tokyo, there's a park, Miyashita Park, which dozens of homeless people call home. For years, they've resisted efforts by the local authorities to remake the park, which has turned into a shanty town for the homeless. The local authorities would like to see it get a new gleaming facelift in time for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, according to Japan Times. Major property firms have been accelerating development projects in the area since Tokyo was picked to host the Olympics. That's just a nutty coincidence causing a surge in real estate values and even prompting concerns about a possible economic bubble. Plans to build four new skyscrapers close to Miyashita Park have already been approved. But before construction begins, the authorities need to clear an area that's been occupied by the homeless for the past decade. Monday morning of this week, construction workers and police erected fences in and around the park, according to Reuters. By midday, activists had gathered in the area to protest against the action. But according to a professor who researches disputes involving homeless communities. The problem is, the homeless people were still stranded inside the fence. Guys, are on the right side of the fence. Evicting the homeless, just part of the Olympics. It's a movement. Rebooting, but still a movement, and we all need one. Every day. And now, just like that, or just like this, the Apologies of the Week. A Bartow, Florida police officer fired for calling former President Obama a gorilla on Facebook is speaking publicly about the incident for the first time. Quote, I just want to apologize for the comment I made. I know how offensive it was to some people. I implied it towards one person specifically. It's not a feeling of an entire race. Christina Arriba said. Facebook post said, yes, this year we lost two gorillas. One is in heaven and one is moving out of the White House. One will be missed. One will not be. Unquote. Back to her statement. At the time, I was elated that a former president was on his way out of the White House because he was largely responsible for the war on law enforcement. 
She was disciplined and went through training for the comment. Once the complaint was addressed with me, I understood how my comment could create a further divide in law enforcement and with the community, and that wasn't my intention at all. It was just a joke made in poor taste, she said. Humor by uniformed amateurs, ladies and gentlemen. Maxine Waters, after Bill O'Reilly on Fox News had mocked her hair, saying, I didn't hear a word she said, I was looking at the James Brown wig. Unquote. O'Reilly said, I am a strong black woman, I cannot be intimidated. O'Reilly later apologized for his comments after he said, I love James Brown, but it's the same hair. He later said, whatever she says, she believes she's not a phony and that's old school. He later apologized for his wig comments in a statement. As I've said many times, I respect Congresswoman Waters for being sincere in her beliefs. Unfortunately, I also made a jest about her hair, which was dumb. I apologize. Bill O'Reilly, ladies and gentlemen. Now I've heard everything. A service of consolation was held at the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist in Savannah, Georgia this week. Bishop Gregory Hartmeyer said the gathering was for the suffering at the in, of the innocent at the hands of priests. The service was full of scripture and music along with a confession and apology from the bishop. Here's one of those apologies from the church we were hearing about earlier. Quote, recently we've had to admit that far too many innocent ones have lived with pain of abuse at the hands of those who have protected them. I'm truly sorry for any pain that a church minister might have inflicted on any person here or upon any relative or friend of anyone gathered here. That's a might apology. The U.S. Olympic Committee, speaking of the Olympics, apologized this week to sex abuse victims, speaking of sex abuse, for shortcomings in child protection policies and cultural problems it acknowledged has contributed to a series of abuse scandals in Olympic sports organizations. There's your end product right there. The Olympic community failed the people it was supposed to protect says the USOC executive in charge of national governing body development. We do take responsibility. We apologize to any young athlete who has ever faced abuse, unquote. Adams, in response to questions from the Senate Judiciary Committee, blamed a flawed culture with a brand the sport and competitive results are given a higher priority than the health and well-being of athletes. That's why children were left at risk, specifically about place involving USA Gymnastics. This is a stark departure for the USOC. They historically delegated child protection to individual Olympic governing bodies. This is the latest sign that the scandal involving USA Gymnastics after previous allegations of mishandled abuse, complaints by USA Swimming, USA Speed Skating, USA Judo, and USA Taekwondo could prompt changes that victim av advocates have advocated for years. That's why they're advocates. Another Olympic apology. Confusing the name of the host city of the 2018 Winter Games, Pyeongchang, with Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea, a corporate jet chartered to a delegation from an Olympic sponsor landed by error in the wrong airport this week. They landed in North Korea. Yang Yang Airport, 400 kilometers to the south of the North Korean capital, was the intended destination. Instead, the plane was guided to Pyongyang International Airport. Air traffic control allowed the flight to land, but as it touched down, it was directed to a distant edge of the tarmac, surrounded by a squadron of security vehicles, lights flashing. We were stunned, one of the passengers said. The group included representatives from worldwide Olympic sponsors and hospitality providers. 
The pilot announced the error where we, we were petrified about what might happen. He told us to stay seated, stay calm. A cabin steward popped the door open. We could see armed men in uniform facing the plane. The apologies of the pilot for the landing error were profuse, quickly translated to Korean. The group was asked to leave the plane while all the luggage was searched. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, Mnuchin says he was just kidding when he plugged his production company's new film Lego Batman during a live interview earlier this month with a new site. Actually, just last month. Months have changed over the weekend. Did you, did you set your calendar ahead? In a Friday letter to the Office of Government Ethics, Mnuchin, Mnuchin explained that he was fully aware of federal ethics guidelines when he cited his production company's film in response to an audience member's lighthearted request for a movie recommendation. I should not have made that statement. I want to assure you I was aware of the rule against using public office to promote a particular product, as I specifically acknowledged in the interview. He says he takes his ethical responsibilities very seriously. Not really an apology. Just kind of a might apology without even the might. A New Jersey prep school says it's deeply sorry for the sexual misconduct, there you go again, against students and other children committed by three faculty members in the 1970s. The Pingree School in Basking Ridge, New Jersey, that's the name of the town, issued the apology this week, the day it issued a 44-page report from a private firm that investigated abuse allegations made by former students. The school says it will be engaging with the survivors to support them. It didn't provide further details. In open letter to the community. And a mother who called the search of her teenage son by a TSA agent horrifying posted on Facebook this week that the agency, the TSA, has apologized and has asked her to work with it to improve their procedures. Video of the 13-year-old search posted on Facebook had garnered more than 7.2 million views by the fourth day up there. Officials said their agent followed procedure during a 45-minute screening process at Dallas-Fort Worth, including a thorough pat-down of the boy that lasted about two minutes. The boy's mother wrote that she was livid since she had requested that the teen not be patted down because he has a disorder that can cause anxiety in children when they are touched. She wrote Thursday, TSA officials have since apologized for what happened and have asked her to help the agency improve its response to people with special medical needs. It's a happy ending to the Apologies of the Week, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, you win some, you lose some. You probably saw that uh, Donald Trump settled. President Trump settled with the complainants in the Trump University case, which got that out of his way. But a federal judge has rejected his free speech defense in a lawsuit in which he's accused of inciting violence against protesters during his campaign. Three protesters who say they were roughed up by his supporters in a March 2016 camp rally in Louisville. Trump's lawyers say when he, the candidate said, get him out of here, he didn't intend for his supporters to use force. But that's still going to proceed. Can we have cameras in that courtroom, please? 
That's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The U.S. 440 cable system in Japan around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America by the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, 7.490 megahertz shortwave. On the mighty 104 in Berlin on Soho Radio in London. Around the world via the Internet. You've heard of it? It's a It's toxic, I hear. At two different locations, live and archive whenever you want at harryshear.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through stitcher.com, not for your smart home. And available as a free podcast for your anything at Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, TuneIn.com, iTunes, and WWNO.org. And it'd be just like hearing something about the violation of the Monuments Clause every once in a while. If you'd agree to be with me then, would you? Alrighty, thank you very much, uh huh? Show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago in exile, and Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's program. The email address for this thing, the playlist of the music heard here on, and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts for the rest of the year, for any occasion that may warrant them, all at harryshare.com. And I'm on Twitter, still at the Harry Shearer. This show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. I went uptown on you. So long from the home of the homeless.